Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, we have a very distinguished audience here today for a distinguished speaker. Um, I'm very pleased to introduce uh, Professor Mark Horton, who, as I'm sure you all know, is Professor in Archaeology at the University of Bristol in the UK, which still exists as an entity. Just. <laughs> Just. Uh, sorry. Um, he's, of course, a historical and maritime archaeologist who has been working on the East African coast since 1980, directing numerous excavations there. Uh, he's produced two books on East Africa, one on his excavations at Shanga and another history of the Sawahili. His particular interest is in the origins of East African Islam and its relationship with the Arabi Arabian Gulf, which I'm sure we'll hear about today. He has also worked in Europe, I should add, and the Caribbean, and most recently in North Carolina. So interesting, are they all connected? Um, as well as being an active archaeologist and historian, he, is also, he also has a media career, uh, appearing on the BBC regularly, presenting the long-running series Coast, with a capital C, since 2005. And I should let you know that you can, you can access some of those episodes on YouTube. I just saw one on that wonderful a railway from Exeter to Dalwish. Built by Brunel. Dawlish. Dawlish. Brunel's atmospheric railway. <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. It's a nice episode. There's also a nice um, sort of personality test online where Mark, uh, Professor Horton, is asked 20 questions. And like all of us, he, uh, he hesitates when he's asked what his favorite color is or what his favorite food is. But the only thing he didn't hesitate about was when he was asked, who is the person dead or alive, you'd most like to meet. And he immediately said Mortimer Wheeler, which means he really is an archaeologist. He was one of my heroes as a young boy because <laughs> he discovered Mohenjo-daro. That's right. Yeah. Welcome, Mark Horton, ladies and gentlemen. Well, thank you very much, Philip, for that warm introduction. It's great, great to be here. I was here last year for the famous Global Gulf seminar um, and um, met many of you there and it's lovely to be back here in Abu Dhabi um, away from the horrors of, of Europe, the winter and other matters. Um, so I'm going to take you to a lovely warm and sunny place uh, and tell you about a little bit about the exotic world, the land of the Zanj, which of course the word Zanzibar comes from, but is a very ancient term referring to the East African coast that is probably derived from the classical term Azania, and then was employed by many of the Arab and Persian geographers to refer to the section of coast in East Africa that extends, extends really from Somalia right down to, to Mozambique. So I'm going to take us on a voyage in the, between the 8th and the 10th century, broadly speaking, about why this place is important and why you, uh, people interested in the history um, of the Gulf, should be um, interested also in East Africa. 
But before I start, I thought we might uh, go back to an earlier voyage uh, where I'm sure many of you know where Alan, the famous mariner, Alan Villiers, who did reconstructions or went on many different historic voyages. He went round Cape Horn in a square rigger, for example. Perhaps his most famous voyage uh, was on the triumph of righteousness just before the Second World War in 1938. And he produced a famous book called Sons of Sinbad and recorded how he himself traveled to the land of the Zanj, conjuring up, if you like, a world of the Arabian Nights um, uh, in the very title of his book. But it was a very workaday voyage, a Kuwaiti Dao uh, that sailed down to Mombasa, and then to Zanzibar, and then on to the Fuji Delta. And the principal purpose of this voyage was to collect mangrove poles from the Fuji Delta, which grow there prodigiously, uh, mangrove poles that were brought back as the standard building material employed in the Gulf up until quite recently when uh, reinforced concrete seems to be more widely employed. Um, uh, but I'm sure you all know of examples where mangrove poles are still employed. Um, and indeed, I took a picture here in Dubai in 2004. I think it was actually a museum reconstruction rather than actually for practical purposes. But it shows you that still those, those poles uh, were still being used. And I can remember when I first started working in East Africa, um, dows would regularly come down to um, the East African coast and transport mangrove poles back up to the Gulf. So this is a, an ancient and high bulk trade uh, that which, which continued um, until living memory. Um, but that was not the only reason why one would want to come to East Africa. East Africa is full of precious and raw materials, which was vital for the commercial systems of the Western Indian Ocean. Commodities like, for example, ivory that we'll come to, gold, which we'll come to, rock crystal, um, precious stones, um, but also other items, perhaps less exotic or less well-known, like skins, civic musk, uh, and a range of other things, copal, uh, ambergris, many, many of these items which appear as, as it were, important trade commodities that enabled the exchange networks of the Indian Ocean that extended all the way from the Red Sea and Arabia right the way through to um, China. And these exotic and precious raw materials were a crucial part. I should also, perhaps slightly hesitantly, also mention um, manpower was also a very important source from East Africa, uh, a source of, um, of what we, I think we describe as forced labor or unfree labor um, that was taken at various times. I think one mustn't overestimate the scale of the slave trade. There were various episodic moments at which it was important. Um, and there's one period which we'll come to briefly in this talk. Now, to place this within the slightly wider context of the Indian Ocean, uh, we, of course, have travel narratives that describe people um, sailing um, principally um, to India and on to China. This is the most famous. Um, and Philip has recently produced a, a new translation published by New York University um, Press, um, a wonderful translation by Tim McIntosh Smith um, of these voyages. Um, the first edition, I should say, in English um, since 17, we can do the CC's LL there, 1733, uh, <laughs> which we had to rely on up until this point. 
And these described um, two, two travel accounts, um, one in the 850s, uh, an anonymous account uh, that takes the voyage um, from Siraf uh, all the way through uh, to India and from then through the Malacca Straits through to um, Southeast Asia and then on to China. And this voyage was described in, in some detail. Uh, rather annoyingly, it didn't actually describe his return voyage. It, historians have generally assumed he came back the same way, but um, he might not have done, and we'll come back to that in a second. Um, a slightly later version that was produced at the same time, or was, was, was bundled in with this uh, 850 voyage, is that of Abu Said al-Sarafi in the 920s. And he doesn't describe his voyage, but rather conveniently describes the places that he went to. And this is a much wider view of the Indian Ocean that extends from the Red Sea, um, southern Arabia, the Gulf, southern India, um, Southeast Asia, where he's particularly detailed in his descriptions, um, um, Peninsula, Southeast Asia, China, but also critically East Africa. And he describes the societies of East Africa, and he describes how they're very excited, for example, about the date. Um, they, they, they bow down. When an Arab comes, they bow down and say, you come from the land of the date. They're obviously extremely keen on dates, and we'll see archaeological evidence for that in a minute. And almost contemporary with this, we have the um, wonders of India, uh, which also describe a world of the Indian Ocean. It's kind of halfway to the, the Sinbad cycle in many ways. Part of it is fantastic narratives about dragons and snakes and all sorts of other things, birds that pick up humans, but also a description of uh, a lot of the ports and activities along the course around the Indian Ocean with names of merchants, dates and so forth attached to it. And again, if we see the world of the wonders of India, we see a similar world that includes both East Africa um, as well as Southeast Asia, South India, the Gulf, and so forth. So we have, I think, in the 10th century, and probably earlier, a really complicated world in which we're getting the essence, if you like, of globalization, of these connections, um, not just simply a simple voyage from, from the Gulf to China, but a series of long-distance networks um, and interrelationships of exchanges of commodities. Now, of course, we know quite a lot about the ships as well. Uh, firstly, we don't know about this one. Um, this was when Tim Severin, of course, replicated the voyage to China, I think in the 1970s, if I'm right, the famous Sohar, sitting on a round, roundabout um, now opposite Parliament building um, in Oman, um, basically it's the same boat, um, um, but essentially a 19th century Tao. Um, to the, the fact is that it, it has very little claims to real authenticity, but it gives you an idea maybe of the scale of boats that might have been involved. But more importantly, we now have a series of shipwrecks which are giving us a very clear idea of the sorts of voyages that took place and the maritime capabilities of the people that were involved. The Beotam shipwreck, which um, is, is now well known, which was found off the coast of Indonesia, that dates to exactly the same time as that anonymous voyage in the 850s, or maybe a little bit earlier. Um, this contained upwards of 60,000 Chinese vessels of Changsha stoneware, um, but also sufficient hull structure, which enabled um, the um, um, Amani 
um, specialist, and Eric Staples is here as the, as the architect of this, to re replicate and sail to um, um, and actually replicate the voice to Singapore um, of the famous jewel of Muscat. And I'm sure he's lectured to here before, so I won't labour the point, but to say that these are very flexible and extremely seaworthy vessels. Um, and very good to as you would, combine the experimental archaeology with that of the um, maritime archaeology, although there were real problems about um, the recording. It would be lovely to have looked at it in more detail, but alas, I think the shipwreck has gone. More excitingly, a new shipwreck has just come to light in Thailand in a shrimp farm. And this dates to the 8th century rather than the mid-9th century. Um, and this is much bigger than the Bellatong ship. The Bellatong ship is at 18 metres. Um, the Thai shipwreck is maybe up to 25 metres in size. It's still being excavated at the moment. And is another Western Indian Ocean sewn vessel. It doesn't have much loot on board because essentially it was salvaged, it hit a sandbank and they managed to take all the material out. But it gives you a really real indication the fact that these ships were, were extending, this is into Thailand, in the 8th century um, and carrying, for example, torpedo jars, which is the type of um, ceramic vessels associated with the early Islamic period, but also Chinese wares. So here is a piece of um, Dusan um, um, or, or, or olive green glazed jar um, that was found um, in the shipwreck. So you have both material from um, the Gulf, but also we have material from China as well found in this shipwreck. So already by the later part of the 8th century, people are moving around. There's a, another couple of images of the, of the same planks. And we have one image, I think it's fair to say, um, from historical sources, um, which is from the famous Harari manuscript, uh, which actually shows a slightly later style of vessel. Uh, the, the wadding is, is done in a slightly different way. Um, but it gives you an idea, maybe, of the ethnic makeup of these vessels. We talk about Arabs and Arab navigation, but actually these vessels were made up of many different nationalities. We can see the terrified merchants, for example, um, below there, um, who are presumably just buying a part of their passage on board, like a, a, a ferry these vessels are. Um, but the crew um, contains certainly Africans here. There's a very African person up in the crow's nest there. The captain might be South Indian or might be even Ethiopian, um, there's some debate about it. So we've got a, a multi-ethnic crew brought from around the Indian Ocean. Um, so it's not Arab shipwrights or Arab sailors alone, but a variety of people are making up these, these voyages. And clearly the vessels themselves may well also be um, of great diversity. The key entrepots of these places are well known, have been excavated, Sohar in Oman, and particularly Siraf, uh, where um, many of these famous voyages took place. Uh, this is one of the house um, of one of the merchants, uh, a huge, great big structure, uh, which um, was excavated from the 10th century. Um, and from Siraf, Chinese ceramics and so forth have been found. Um, the dimensions of these rooms, incidentally, are of, the, of a size that will be suitable for mangrove poles. And there are historical sources, Ibn Hukul, for example, that refers to uh, the importation of teak and mangrove poles as roofing materials from East Africa. The Friday Mosque is very interesting. It's quite late and sits over an early Islamic fortress um, from the 8th century. 
Um, but this Friday Moss platform is key because it contains the rubbish from around 800 that enables us to date many of the sites that we find um, in East Africa. Chronologies of these things is critical in many ways. And we also have sites, for example, this one in Dubai, uh, which is apparently a similar, some people suggest it's a colony of Sarafi merchants um, on the Arabian side. Uh, we don't really know for certain. The site hasn't been fully investigated, but there's great similarities in the plans of the houses um, that have been found there. So we know where people are leaving from. Where exactly are they going? What do we know about East Africa? Let's take a voyage down this coastline. The first thing to say, which is the completely obvious one, I don't need to labour this to an audience here, is that sailing to East Africa is a very easy operation. We have monsoon winds that blow in one direction for six months a year and then reverse their direction for the remaining six months. So, so you have a period in which you stay for the change of monsoons in March-ish, um, and then return back um, on the southwest monsoon that takes you back to the Gulf. And you can see it's a relatively straight line in which you're at, effectively, you have to cross the Gulf of Aden, but otherwise, it's a relatively coastline-type voyage. So while the distances are large, um, reliable and not particularly strong winds allow one to take these, these voyages with relative um, simplicity. Once you get below the latitude of, of, of Kilwa, which is here, or just about here, the winds get a bit unreliable. And as a result, Kilwa um, and a bit further south of Camores become a key entrepot in this trade because ultimately it's the place where Gulf ships can reach but have difficulty reaching any further on. But we'll, we'll look at this towards the end of the lecture as we get down that bit of the coastline. Okay, so... One of the problems that we have in the archaeology and the history of this area is a complete lack of really any serious and reliable documentary evidence. We have snippets from geographers, but essentially in this period we have only two eyewitness accounts. Ibn Battuta in the 14th century, who comes by and leaves a rather garbled account from 1331, and al-Mazudi, who gives a much more reliable and detailed account, and he describes that he came down to a town called Kambalu um, in the company of Sirafi ship owners, and he gives them their name, and he says, the last time I did this voyage um, was in 916. So Mazudi is a very useful and reliable eyewitness account, but a lot of the other accounts are rather garbled, and it's often very difficult to make much sense of them, so hence the importance of archaeology. An understanding of the Indian Ocean was also rather a curious one. Um, this is Ptolemy's world map of 150, and knowledge really doesn't really move on significantly um, until the late Middle Ages, the late medieval period. There was debates as to whether um, Africa was joined to Southeast Asia or not, and there was a great deal of confusion in the place names between the two areas. You can see that what we have here is kind of like an encircling lake um, in which the East African coast is seen to come down here endlessly and somehow connect through to to island Southeast Asia. So the geographical knowledge of this was, was somewhat limited. And perhaps this is best summarized by my favorite map of this period, which has recently come to light. Um, it was acquired by the Bodleian Library in Oxford um, from the Book of Curiosities, a Fatimid map of the um, mid-11th century that shows the Indian Ocean world 
um, in uh, just like that Ptolemaic conception of the world. Um, and what's very critical is it shows um, various East African locations. So if we now go back to the transcription of it, um, you can see rather conveniently that it has the places of India and China and Yemen and so forth, not quite well in order, but also it has a series of East African islands mentioned, including Unguja, which is um, Languja or Unguja, which is the, the place then for Zanzibar, and this other island, Kambalu, which is where Al-Mazudi sailed to, and which we'll argue a little bit later is the island of Pemba. Um, Driss's map is, is somewhat similar um, in that uh, what we have here is um, a, a map of, this is, is upside down to make it a bit easier, uh, here we have the Mediterranean, here we have Abu Dhabi, um, not marked as such, and here we actually have the East African coast, which as you can see is rather devoid. And again, Idrissi has this problem about how it connects with, if you read his text, how it connects with Southeast Asia or not. So the same idea of this enclosed lake and how people perceived and confused the bottom end of East Africa um, with uh, where they thought they might be in Southeast Asia. Okay, so what I want to do is take you now down a trip down the African coast, uh, starting in the La Archipelago in the north and ending up um, right down in Madagascar and South Africa. We've been doing a lot of work here, um, principally through a project called Sea Links between 2010 and 2016, actually, it's slightly out of date, this slide. Um, and you can see that there's some of the places I've marked in brown that we've been to and I'm going to mention in this talk. Um, huge amounts of, of archaeological activity, um, and um, what we've been doing is sampling these sites and getting really detailed chronological evidence, particularly in this early phase in the first millennium. So let's now start in the Lama Archipelago, the great lumber yard of the Abbasids, if you believe various people, um, where those poles, those mangrove poles were taken and the teak and various other commodities um, were taken to build the ships, like the Belatong shipwreck probably, um, which was made out of African timber, but also the building materials and so forth. Um, and um, this is an archipelago of three islands, uh, with some small islands, Manda Island, Lamu Island, and Pate Island, where we have a remarkable number of archaeological sites. One was excavated in the 1960s and 1980s by Neville Chittick, who was the director of the British Institute in East Africa, a site called Manda, and he got extremely excited because he thought this really was a colony of Sirafi merchants. Uh, he compared the plan of the houses here um, to those found at Sarath that had recently been excavated by David Whitehouse. Um, and um, he believed that this was where these merchants came to undertake this trade. Uh, we spent a lot of time trying to disprove this hypothesis, I should hasten to add, and to actually demonstrate that Manda is a, is a very important trading port indeed, but it's in probably African, um, an African port which is probably Muslim rather than necessarily a colony of, of Persian or, or Arab merchants. But the ceramics found are extremely impressive, and this is a repertoire that appears both in the Gulf and also all the way down the East African coast. I won't labour the point, but we have, um, for example, these turquoise glazed wares, sometimes called Sasanian Islamic, um, which are probably containing the date syrup 
uh, which people got excited about. Um, various forms of glazed wares, um, blue splash glazed wares, um, which are often known as the Samara Horizon from the 9th century, uh, which are sort of luster and opaque glazed wares. A few pieces of Chinese ware, this is a piece of dingware, and also large jars that we know were being made in the um, kilns at Siraf itself. So a wide assemblage of material, but in, in, in broad terms, we actually counted the number of sherds of these imports compared to local pottery at Manda. It's about 3 or 4%. So one mustn't over-egg the fact that one's overwhelmed in all this lovely imported material. The vast bulk of the material is local. Um, the site that I worked on for many years, Shanga, which is on Pate Island, immediately opposite to, to Manda, um, is a, a very similar site with a very similar range of imports, uh, but has a slightly different story. A deep archaeology um, buried underneath a 14th century town that goes down some um, four or five metres in depth, so the excavation of this is a nightmare. But what we have, and what we studied in particular, is that other 95% of the site that consisted of earthenware pottery, locally made earthenware pottery that we call Tana tradition. And this is interesting because this is the, the type fossil, if you like, of the indigenous people that are living along the coast, who are Bantu people, who are Swahili-speaking, Swahili is a Bantu language. And if we compare the distribution of Bantu or proto-Swahili proto languages along the coast with the distribution of this Tana tradition pottery, you can see that it has a, a very similar type of distribution. Um, and so what we actually think is that these ports, port cities along the African coast are not Arab colonies anymore, but are indigenous African communities that are assimilating ideas, Islam, contact ideas from the wider Indian Ocean world. And maybe the odd um, person is coming and settling in these places, but they're not essentially colonial models of a 19th century um, type. And deep archaeology associated with largely timber buildings. So here we have a series of circular buildings, for example. And you can get some idea of the depth of the archaeology. And this particular point, I mentioned the, the house and cisterns at Manda. Well, we found an almost identical building um, at Shanga, which is here. And you can see here, here it is with its floors. But when we excavated underneath it, we found it was predece predecessor was a massive timber building in exactly the same footprint and probably exactly the same plan. And there's one of the post holes pre-excavation of this massive great big timber structure. So in other words, uh, these buildings are coming out of a timber tradition rather than a masonry tradition um, that is almost certainly indigenous in nature. So people are adopting stone architecture because they know about it rather than it's a result of a technological transfer um, critically. Islam remains one of the key issues to what extent these Swahili or proto-Swahili towns were Muslim has been a long debate. So are merchants who are coming down from the Gulf, are they coming to places that are non-Islamic, um, are difficult places. Why would they want to trade? The difficulties of trade, trading with such places. Or are they coming to indigenous settlements that are Muslim? Well, to test that question, uh, we excavated the Friday Mosque at Shanga, which is a 14th century building as it stands, but the core of it is an 11th century, early 11th century building here. 
and we're able to go down below the prayer floor hall, the prayer hall, the floor of that prayer hall, uh, down through the sand deposits to the earlier sequence of mosques underneath. And here we found a very remarkable sequence. Um, so the, the earliest, the latest standing mosque is here from about 1000 AD. Then we have an earlier stone mosque. And then underneath it, we have timber mosques, about eight of them, one on top of another on top of another. Um, these are timber mosques made out of sticks brought from the mangroves. I mean, in fact, the floor weren't plaster floors, but were mud floors, again, made of mud that was brought especially from the mangroves to lie the, the floor of the mosque. We also found one mosque, which was particularly special, which was scattered with stones, small stones. And this is really interesting because there's an early Islamic tradition about early mosques having stones on the floor, um, because when people would pray, if they had sand on the floor, they would have sand on their hands, would clap their hands, and the sand would go everywhere, and this was thought to be part of a ritual, so people put small stones on the, on the mosque floor. So here we actually have a floor with stones on it in that very early Islamic tradition. And we have radiocarbon dates that go back to around 750 for these mosques. So they're not only by far the earliest mosques ever discovered in, in sub-Saharan Africa, but some of the very earliest mosques ever excavated in Islam at all, and there's an example of the same tradition carrying on today. Associated with these very early mosques, we have silver coins. Um, these are um, with um, low, single names like Muhammad or Abdullah, um, and uh, little um, Islamic, uh, an Arabic um, little couplet on the other side. They have no dates, they have no reference to the caliph or anything else like this. These are being locally produced coins by people living here, um, who themselves are, um, let's put it that way, independent of the Islamic world, but still trying to be part of it. And this coining tradition we'll come back to in a second. So the Lama Capelago, certainly by the early 9th century, the late 8th century, it was fully connected with the Gulf. It had all these wonderful import trade items. It was Muslim, it was semi-urban, um, and they were producing their own coins. What's interesting is there's not a single scrap of documentary evidence uh, for the Lama Archipelago. We have no idea what these places were really called. There's no documentary or geographical reference to this place, this place at all. So slightly different when we come on down um, to the Zanzibar Archipelago. Two islands, Zanzibar and Pemba. Pemba to the north and Zanzibar um, to the south here. Now, these are two islands that we think are mentioned um, in the, um, on the Book of Curiosities as Kambalu and um, Languja Islands. Um, and Languja, incidentally, in Bantu means to wait, to wait the monsoon, so it's a very interesting choice of place names. Um, and is um, mentioned, these two islands are mentioned in um, Jahiz, in the, 11th, uh, in, the, in the 9th century um, as places in particular where slaves are being obtained to trade up principally to the Gulf um, and involved in the draining of the swamps and, and so forth. Um, and indeed, immediately opposite the islands of Zanzibar and Pemba, uh, there were large Iron Age communities which kind of disappear from the archaeological record at this stage. So we suspect that these are indeed the Bantu who are being um, slaved. Um, but I want to talk about, while well, I've got these maps on, to say a bit about Tumbe, um, um, Tamwim Ku, Rasam Kumbu, and down here at Unguju Aku. 
Um, there's a map of the mainland of East Africa um, opposite Zanzibar and Pemba. And you can see all these archaeological sites on this mountain range that come quite close to the coast. Um, that would have been very densely settled by Iron Age farmers in exactly this time. But by the 10th century, um, these sites have practically disappeared. So the source of labour that would have been um, taken to the Gulf is probably um, from this area. So Tumbe, which is on the northern tip of um, Pemba Island um, and may well be the place where Mazudi went to, um, he may be where he worshipped, um, is a site that's only been recently discovered uh, and we hope to maybe to work there this summer uh, where we have timber buildings, uh, door structures uh, and huge amounts of evidence of the manufacture of beads, of shell beads in particular from this site. Um, it's a very extensive site, covers about 15 hectares in area. And interestingly, it has a type of glass bead that we find, um, um, that we think almost certainly comes from the Gulf um, and is located here, but we also find in the sites in Southern Africa that we'll come back to in a minute. Mazudi describes the societies of South Africa in some detail. And it may well be that this place, or Pemba Island General, is a stopping off point. You're coming from the Gulf, you go to Pemba, and either you go no further, or that's a stopping off point to go much further south. Um, there may be Ibadi. Uh, we have a mosque um, from an adjacent site, uh, which is an Ibadi mosque with a mihrab that's set within the thickness of the wall. Um, and there is indeed some evidence from Mazudi's own testimony that this place may well be Ibadi in origin, or Harajite anyway. The other site on Pemba, Ras Umkumbu, uh, is um, the place name gives it away. Umkumbu, Kambalu, uh, is this, this little belt of land with 14th century material on the top. Um, but when we investigated the hill area of the site behind, we found another massive um, 11th century, 10th, 11th century site with timber buildings and an enormous mosque. This is 11th century, but underneath it, just like at Shanga, we have a sequence of earlier mosques, another stone mosque, and then an earlier timber mosque. So again, probably by the 9th century, they are certainly Muslim at this point. So there's the evidence of the earlier mosque. And probably this is another Ibadi mosque, as far as we can see. Um, and then the third site, um, Kumbu, um, 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 Tanwim Ku, is a sort of mysterious island, uh, fascinatingly complex, again, without many masonry buildings. Uh, but we found a hoard of coins here uh, associated with 10 Fatimid dinars of the 11th century, the latest 1066, but associated with 2,500 locally minted silver coins. Now, these silver coins are directly descendant from those silver coins I showed you at Shanga from the um, 9th century. So here we have in the late 10th, early 11th century, we have about three generations of minters we can check from the over-minting. So this coining tradition goes back to around 1000 AD or thereabouts. Um, and um, these are, again, locally, locally minted coins. So these must be local people who are part of the, uh, the creating an identity, as it were, a local sultanate, if you like, at Mtamwi Mku. And finally, um, in this little section, Ungujo Ku, which is by far the richest 
of all the sites we've so far excavated. Whereas at Manda and at Tumbe, the percentage of imported pottery is about 3%. At Ngujuku, the percentage is over 10%. Uh, they are literally living, eating off material that's coming from the Gulf. Huge quantities of turquoise glazed wares, torpedo jars, um, beads, glass, the whole assemblage um, of material. Um, this we've been investigating using slightly new methodologies, using what we call flotation, um, to, in order to obtain the seeds, um, the food material that people were eating, not just to work out their diet, but also to get very precise radiocarbon dates to provide a, an exact chronology for these particular sites. So this is um, Ungujuaku. These are some of the materials. It's a lovely place to work. It's on a beach, you can see. Um, um, again, no masonry buildings. This is a door build. This is daub and timber buildings and so forth. Um, but you can see there's a nice gold bead here, um, a bit of a Chinese mirror, carnelian beads from India, um, a, a, an Islamic probably is incense burner, bracelets, turquoise glazed wares. And again, this is um, Changsha ware. So this is the Changsha painted stoneware, um, exactly the same type that was found on the Belatung shipwreck that we saw early on in the talk. So here we go, Changsha ware. So, but it's not mid-9th century, this Changsha ware goes back to the mid-8th century, and we can tell from the, from the radiocarbon dates. So here we've got also some of the beads, including an eyed bead that comes from Thailand. So... This is the kind of boring slide. I'm sorry, not that many boring slides, but here's a really boring slide for the scientists amongst us. Um, you can see the, the deep archaeology, the complex stratigraphy that allows us to provide extremely precise chronologies using um, Bayesian statistics to get us an exact date range for this material. So we think that Ngujuku is first occupied around 700, 680 AD um, and goes through to the 9th century. Interestingly enough, it appears to be largely abandoned um, in the end of the 9th century. This is exactly the same date as the Zand Revolt, um, when possibly the importation of African slaves um, rather went off people's agenda. Anyway, so if we now move on down a bit more. So Ngujuku, we think, and, 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 Tumba, and, 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 and Pemba, Kambalu, may well be absolutely key entrepots in this trading network, and most of the Gulf ships would have got that far. Did they go any further? Well, interestingly, the evidence suggests that they did. The first site that I want to talk about briefly is, is Kilwa. Kilwa is very well known in Swahili archaeology because it has a chronicle recorded by the Portuguese that tells a history of how the place was founded um, by merchants from Siraf or from Shiraz, um, and how this tells the story of these seven brothers that set sail after the, they dreamt that the town wall of Shiraz was going to collapse, and so they took ship next day. Well, Shiraz is quite a long way from the sea, so that's a little difficult. And how they, set, they established a series of towns down the coast, and Kilwa was one of these towns. So trying to sort out this historical text with respect to the archaeology is, is a real challenge. And Neville Chittick also excavated extensively in Kilwa in the 1960s. In fact, his last excavation was 1966. 
Um, so this year we decided, or last year, we decided to go back and reevaluate one of his excavations. So here's the Kilwa Archipelago. You can see a bit further down the coast here. Um, Chittig excavated in a rather old-fashioned way using Durkerville trucks um, that carried the spoil away. Not much sieving was going on there, I'm afraid. Um, but nonetheless, um, he produced some interesting plans of the site. Um, he did one test pit through the site, uh, next to what he called the Great House, which is his large 15th century house, and he went down, right down to the natural subsoil. So in a rather sort of naughty and cheeky way, I dug, dug a little trench next door um, to check his stratigraphy, to work it all out, to actually sieve the deposits to work out what was really there. Um, and we could really straighten out his chronology, and I won't really want to go into it and re-examine re the Kilwa Chronicle in detail, is another rather boring archaeological story. But to say that we can trace how Kilwa, which became this fabulously important place in the 13th and 14th centuries, origins go back to the same period in the 9th or late 8th centuries, but we can trace its general rise to prosperity, almost as Zanzibar and Pemba themselves declined in prosperity. So here we have, for example, the percentages of imports that we found from that trench, and you can see from 800, there's virtually none. And then it then goes ballistic um, by around 1100 AD or thereabouts. Uh, we, can do, we can see the, the Islamic types. You can see how those archaeologists amongst them will immediately recognize the, these types, types happening. And even if we look at the, the accounts, the, the raw counts of imports, again, you can see exactly the same um, 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 shift happening there. So one can see how Kilwa replaces Zanzibar and Pemba as the entrepot of choice for people coming from the Gulf, the place um, where they could obtain um, their raw materials from southern Africa that were so needed in the Gulf. Interestingly, um, in one of those early levels, we found this rather nasty little coin, uh, which is identical to one of the coins from the Imtamwi hoard. Um, in fact, it's of Ali bin al-Hassan, who is meant to be the founder of the, the Shirazi dynasty, if you like, who we can now date very firmly to around 1000 AD. And so we've got this really interesting link between Pemba Island and, um, and Kilwa um, from the, the coin evidence. So we can now do a nice link from Lamu to Pemba, to Kilwa um, in a rather interesting uh, way. Kilwa is also full of beads, and beads have suddenly become the key commodity for archaeologists to understand globalization and trade links because we can chemically characterize these beads, but at the same time we can work out their distribution. They get everywhere. Um, because they're so light, um, they give you some idea of the nature of these exchange networks. And what this recent work has done, particularly in southern Africa, has shown where effectively these commodities that are being fed into the East African coast and into those Gulf vessels, where they're actually coming from. And they're not coming from the hinterland of Zanzibar and Pemba. They're not coming from the hinterland of Kilwa. But they're actually coming down from the basically the hinterland of the Mozambique coast, the area that we would call now modern Zimbabwe, but even further south in what we now call Botswana and um, the Republic of South Africa. And a remarkable series of investigations have taken place in eastern Botswana and in South Africa um, around the Limpopo River here, 
where many of these trade beads can now be identified, which are specifically gulf beads. We know they're called Zizo beads. Those same Zizo beads have been found on Pemba Island and are also found down here, right down, in the, um, down there in South Africa. This area, some of these sites are huge middens of worked ivory, uh, suggesting that one of the exports is ivory, but also they're right next door to all the gold fields, um, which we know from Mazudi and, and, and the wonders of India, are being exploited um, by this time. So an extraordinary network. I've just shown you an example of the famous map and Gubwe rhinoceros. If you're in London the next few weeks, it's on display in the British Museum. Um, a, remarkable, a remarkable find in one of the royal tombs at map and Gubwe itself, probably 13th century in this case. But so you can see the working and exploitation of gold is already quite extensive at this point. The real problem is how do you get down so far down south? down to the um, southern African coast. Because I think, as I've intimated, the monsoon winds kind of stop by Kilwa-ish. And how do you actually get down? What, how do people do this extraordinary navigation? Well, recently, um, some work has been done. We love NASA. Um, have been putting what are called drones in the sea. Not the drones that fly above the ground, but drones. These are, you put in the sea and they have little um, GPSs that then communicate with satellites and you can track them as they go round and round um, following the currents. And here's a couple of drone tracks of a drone that was put into the sea there and you can see it's going round and round and round and round. Now the Mozambique current was seen to be an effective way of getting to South Africa um, but how did you actually get back? Um, well, these drone images have actually shown very clearly what's happening, that if you take the African coast down one side, uh, and then basically you then go across to Madagascar and go back on the other side, on the countercurrent, you've got a current system that enables you to navigate the Mozambique Channel. Here's another image, again, from outer space, showing this is a gravity model in this case, and you can see these, these circles in operation. So it seems it is possible to do these navigations and whether it's the Swahili who are going down there or actually the Gulf sailors, which is intimated incidentally from Mazudi, who gives a very clear description of the kings who are living down in South Africa. So he clearly had a knowledge of the kind of states operation that was happening down there. Um, it would suggest that maybe Gulf sailors were reaching all the way down. But there was another reason why people wanted to come down to the extreme end of the South African coast, or the Southern African coast. And that is what might describe as the Austronesian element. Now, it's long been known that Madagascar has been settled, or was settled, by people from Austronesia. We know this from many strains of evidence, from the genetic evidence, which is now overwhelming, the linguistic evidence, um, Malagasy, the language is an Austronesian language, a burrito, part of the burrito group of languages um, from um, south um, east Borneo, southern Borneo from here. But we also know from the crops involved, and we're also involved in, this, in these um, long-distance networks. Um, and the mystery has been when and how did that take place? Well, I think that uh, and, and we've done now a lot of work in Madagascar, and people have wanted to find Austronesians at you know, 2000 BC, 1000 BC. My feeling is that actually it's much more recent than that. It belongs to this same great period in the 9th century, in the 8th century, 
when people are moving across the Indian Ocean, but also from Southeast Asia. Um, so we'll see, we'll see some, some, some evidence for this. Um, there is um, one of the sites we've been dig digging in northwest um, Madagascar, a site called Mahilika, which appears to be a, a great depot, storage depot, if you like, for some of the commodities involved. You can see we've got a big fortress here in the middle at Mahilika. Um, but another site on the, west, on the east coast, uh, a little island called Noza Manga Bay, where we have Sasanian Islamic or turquoise glazed wares, one shirt. Um, we have um, some opaque glazed wares, I think three shirts, and we are a very, very long way away, I may hasten to add. But also this very interesting lump of rock crystal. Madagascar is the main source for the production of rock crystal in the Islamic world. We have very good, Baruni tells, um, um, Baruni tells us about this, um, that a lot of the rock crystal is coming both to the Gulf and to the Fatimid world to create those great Fatimid ewers is coming probably from Madagascar. And um, we actually have archaeological level, historical, these are the lumps, enormous lumps of rock crystal that can be found um, on the northeast coast of Madagascar and still can be found in river valleys and so forth. There's still a brisk trade in this very, very clear and very, very translucent rock crystal. And when we've looked, Mahalika was full of chippings from this rock crystal, um, but also when we've looked at the Comores, uh, which is this little archipelago of islands between Madagascar and the mainland of Africa, again, the sites that we've excavated are full of chippings of um, rock crystal. So there is a reason to go to Madagascar as well, um, but um, we, our model is that actually the Comores seems to be the main entrepot where people are trying to reach. It's where, if you sailed across from Southeast Asia, but also coming down the East African coast, is a natural entrepot. And we have a series of sites um, on the archipelago, um, the Comorian archipelago. There were four islands, or four principal islands. One, Mayotte, is actually still part of France, um, uh, um, a French colony. The other three are an independent country. They're basically volcanoes sitting out in the middle of the ocean, um, and they're full of wonderful archaeology. Um, so this is one site called Sima, or Old Sima, um, on the island of Anjouan. And here we have archaeological evidence. We have good um, pits full of rubbish, which is the good stuff for archaeologists. Um, and this includes um, ceramics. And these ceramics are extremely interesting because they're, they're halfway between the Tana tradition pottery I was telling you about earlier, but also have Southeast Asian influences, the use of um, red slip on them and these um, little um, dentates along the rim of the vessel, which is very, has a very Southeast Asian feel about it. So is it possible that the Comores are this sort of entrepot between Africa um, and Southeast Asia? Well, the best evidence for that comes from the food crops. Whereas in Gujarku and those other sites along the coast are entirely African crops, what we find on the Comores is that the crops are entirely of Southeast Asian origin. They're eating rice, they're eating moonbean, they've got cotton, they've got bearbab, Sorry, sorry, they've got, they've got cotton, they've got mung bean, um, and large amounts of rice. And this is a very good preservation of the rice. Um, not a single piece of African um, crop, food crop here. So this is a really good indicator. We published a few months ago in PNAS, a really good indicator um, that these sites are, have this very close and intimate knowledge link with um, 
um, Southeast Asia as well. So um, this summer we excavated a site on Grand Comore called Umbeni, a site that's been heavily damaged by uh, erosion. And here we have the same assemblage of ceramics um, from, um, as in Old Sima, you can see the dentate wares here. But very interestingly, we also found in this 8th century level a sherd of pottery um, called um, AMV ware, which is exactly the same as from, we excavated in Nozomanga Bay, um, from Madagascar. So we've got this interesting link, this rather nasty shirt of pottery, between 8th century Camores and Madagascar. Not surprising, but um, a very interesting and useful confirmation that these places are, are connected in the 8th century. But another site was remarkable um, on this same site. It had been destroyed by the sea, so we had to excavate virtually, virtually under the sea, between tides, if you like, full of turquoise glazed ware. There's, there's a nice image of what they actually look like from the Qatar National Museum, if you want a nice example, of what this nasty stuff looks like, full of date syrup. Um, but you'll see here in the middle, uh, we have a shirt of Changsha stoneware, the first shirt from the Camores or so far south. So if we just do a sort of picture here, there is the Changsha from the Belatung wreck, and here is the Changsha um, from Umbeni. I mean, it could have come off it almost exactly the same. So, so here we've got uh, a, an interesting example. Now, it's possible that this Changsha is coming um, all the way from the Gulf and then all the way down the coast of Africa. But where was the Belatung wreck shipwreck actually found? Well, here we've got off um, the island of Belatung, or the southern end of Sumatra. Now, most people have argued that it got that far south because it was swept down by a great typhoon and got shipwrecked, or it was going into Shrujaya, which is up here somewhere. We don't really know where um, the capital Shrujaya was, somewhere up here, and it lost its way. And there's awful lots of special pleading. Um, another possibility is, is actually it's coming down through the Sunda Straits, um, rather than the Malacca Straits to the north, um, and um, in which case, is it actually going directly to East Africa? Is it actually directly going to the Camores rather than... Um, and if you do that, if you work out the routing, you knock about six months off the overall journey. Um, and you can see that you can take the very reliable southeast trades um, that take you across um, from here, who are take you across in July, across following latitude sailing all the way across to the Camores. In fact, people have done it. They've done endless replica, replications of these voyages. Um, one in the 1960s, 1980s, that took 46 days, and one um, in the early 2000s that took um, 26 days, or would have taken 26 days, but they were diverted to the Seychelles to have a hot shower. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is possible to do these things. Well, I'll just go back. Um, this sort of lay, lay in the realm of speculation until in the mid-2000s, another shipwreck was found very close to the Belatong ship, um, which is the Sirabon wreck. Um, this lies off the, immediately the north coast of, of Java, and it's different from the Belatong wreck. It's, it's a lash, what's called lash lug and dowel constructed vessel, so it's not a Western Indian Ocean type, but most likely a Southeast Asian um, type of vessel. 
and was excavated by commercial um, divers, um, and um, a very, very large quantity of material was found here. So there's the plan of the vessel. It's actually rather better recorded than the Belatung shipwreck. Um, it's about 36 metres in size, so it's twice the size of the Belatung shipwreck. Um, if you put that in perspective, it's twice the size also, or just, oh, just under twice the size, of the ships that Christopher Columbus sailed across the Atlantic to discover the New World. So these are massive vessels. They're not tiny little, little boats with, with outriggers that people have visualised, but enormous vessels. It's been estimated that on this was upwards of 400,000 Chinese um, bowls um, from the 10th century. So this material is in the most enormous quantities. But I don't want to dwell much on the Chinese material because, well, fortunately, the um, collection of the Cerebon ship has been, has been acquired by the Qatar National Museums. Um, and so we can begin to look in more detail of what is actually on this vessel. And what's interesting is while it's got this huge quantity of Chinese vessels, it also has an enormous quantity of material from the Gulf, um, including, um, there's a little display, lots of Gulf, um, lots of Gulf glassware, for example. Um, this is some of the Chinese wares here. Um, but also, you're getting bored with this stuff, turquoise glazed wares. Um, <laughs> and here we go, another Sirafi jar. Um, so there's no doubt at all that they, they pass by. Um, um, we also like to know it's also full of rock crystal, chips of rock crystal, probably from Madagascar. And you can see that this rock crystal is almost identical to the one I showed you, a modern example from here. But also rock crystal balls. Um, an example of rock crystal carving that's probably gulf in origin. This extraordinary fish, a little vial um, from there. About a tonne and a half of lapis lazuli, for example. Huge quantities of beads, exactly the same type of beads that we find in these East African towns, some of which come from, from Western India, some of which come from Thailand, and some of which come from the Gulf. Sapphires, rubies, again, which must come from Sri Lanka or southern India. So suddenly we're seeing a cargo vessel that's just full of the material of the world moving around the Indian Ocean. Um, and I think we've just got to totally change how we think of the world of the Indian Ocean in the 8th and 9th centuries. We need to slightly move away from the, uh, the documents and the single tour stories to actually have a much bigger idea of the connections that's happening. That these Gulf ships are coming down to East Africa in order to obtain the ivory that they can then take on to China to acquire the ceramics and so forth that they bring back. They may be coming actually all the way back from China via East Africa rather than the long route up through the Malacca Straits and through India. Um, they may be exchanging all these precious raw materials in a very complex way. They may be acquiring some of these Chinese ceramics not from China, but actually from the Comores, where these great Indonesian vessels are actually turning up. So if I just finish with two last images, um, first of all, here is the world of the Sirbon shipwreck, or you could say almost the Belatum shipwreck as well, um, which is an almost exact carbon copy of those earlier images I showed you from those documentary sources, Abu Zaid al-Sarafi um, in the 10th century, or 9th century, who describes this world. You can see this is where the material culture of the Indian Ocean is being brought together in just this one frozen moment of this shipwreck. And I'm just going to rather cheekily end up um, with, with, with a slight modification to my earlier plan that I showed you um, to show that maybe 
we're sealing, we, we, we're, we're escaping the truth. In fact, people are moving across the Indian Ocean that Madagascar is being settled because it's part of a trade network with Southeast Asia, not because you've got the odd vessel that's got shipwrecked and blown across, well, like sort of MH370, where all the debris, if you remember, turned up on the Madagascan coast. No, this is a globalising world, um, and I suppose in part of that globalising world, the Gulf plays an absolute key role because it's the fulcrum of all these really interesting and phenomenal long-distance networks. So I hope I've kind of hope to, to show, I mean, some of this is speculation, but, you know, the more archaeology we, we go, the more remarkable now the evidence comes. So it's essentially, we're not talking about globalization in the 19th century or the 13th century or the 15th century, but we're talking about globalization in the 8th and 9th centuries, and um, the Gulf is, 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 is key in that story. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, plenty. Yeah, 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 yeah. Microphone. <laughs> I overwhelmed you. <laughs> come to gosh, yes, come on. <laughs> Here, that. Is, is there any archaeological evidence? Sorry. Is, is there archaeological evidence for continuity with Sasanian maritime practices in the um, materials that you discover, or does this seem to be a thing that's new with the coming of Islam in the Islamic era? Well, that's a very big and interesting question. Okay, so we have sites um, at the very bottom of, of Ngujukun. We have another site um, in the northern tip of Zanzibar um, called Fukuchani, which has no turquoise glazeware but just has Sasanian type torpedo jars. Um, we have a site uh, on the very tip of Somalia, a place called Ras Hafoun, that is clearly part of also a trade network that has Sasanian material in it. So I think that it, it, dating this material is, is the real issue. Um, and when does Islam begin, um, you know, in terms of people identifying themselves as as Sasanian traders rather than Muslim traders. I mean, the same issue has happened at Siraf, where the, the fort, which was thought to be a Sasanian fort, we now think is early Islamic in, in date. Um, but these settlements in East Africa, it's very difficult to push it much before the late 7th century. But you never know. We might dig a hole and find some. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. Um, I have two questions. The first one, what, uh, to whom does the material that you, that you find belong to uh, when you do this uh, archaeological work? Uh, where does it go? It's a local museum. Who, whose local museum? Well, whatever the... the, the... We're, we're working, obviously, under permit from local antiquities departments. So in Zanzibar and Pemba, for example, there's a, a museum of archives and museum of antiquities, and so the material is all curated in the, in the museum there. Um, in Tanzania, it's, it's curated by the antiquities service there, um, and so on okay. and so forth. The second question would be how your um, archaeological work 
helps in social archaeology if that is if that is term I could use. Um, for example, now we have relation we have trade relations with other countries, mm. but it really somehow you feel sometimes it doesn't affect our social interaction with them. Mm. Um, can you give us an idea about that? So you're thinking about modern social archaeology, as it were. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's maybe one of the reasons why I'm here. I think that, that, that there is this material. I mean, it'd be fantastic for some of this material to, to come on temporary exhibition and so forth. I mean, just simply the wow factor. I mean, it's very easy in a talk like this to show you pictures and maps and so forth. But the wow factor, you just think of the thousands of kilometres that people are travelling and this material is going over. You know, it is just mind-boggling. Um, and I think just to see the stuff and to understand, it has a real important public story to be told, not just an academic one. Um, you know, so I'm sure that you know, relations between... And I think relations between the East African countries and um, Gulf countries are getting much stronger. <laughs> I want the money, one thing. <laughs> um, thank you for the great lecture, Mark. Um, I had a question about rock crystal. Um, you, you mentioned um, on showing the source, I think, on the east coast of Mozambique, and I just wondered if there can be um, many other sources for rock crystal. The reason I say that is because we find rock crystal beads uh, dating to between 5,000 to 5,500 BC on some of the islands along the coast west of Abu Dhabi, so on the Neolithic sites yes. that I'm excavating on Marawa and on Dalma. And they are quite rare. They're, they're about you know, maybe 1%, 2% of the total bead assemblage. Most of the beads are made from shells. But um, it, I, I think there must be some other source of Absolutely. rock crystal. They're, they're being drilled and prepared actually on the islands in Abu Dhabi. So there must be another source of rock crystal that's nearer to our area. I think I don't for imagine, imagine that, uh, that in the Neolithic period they're get, getting Madagascar. all the way to Mozambique. Yeah. No, uh, no, but, yeah. Madagascar. No, no, I think, um, absolutely. No, I think, I mean, you know, we know that, I mean, rock crystal is quite a common yes. mineral. Um, and I mean, there's, there's, there's India, Sri Lanka, there's quite a lot, there's quite a lot in from Afghanistan as well, there's known about. Um, so, you know, there's quite a lot of the sources in Europe as well. The key thing about the Madagascan rock crystal is two things. One of which is, is, is it exceptionally clear. Um, and secondly, it comes in very, very large lumps, which enables you to create these ewers and so forth in a way. Because most of the sources of, of rock crystal around the world, until really Brazil was discovered in the 6th, 17th century as a source, um, are quite small pieces. So you can make beads and so forth with them. But when you're starting to make these much more elaborate works of art, you really need Madagascan rock crystal to do it. Yes, I mean, we have quite nice kind of tubular sort of mm. beads, and they're, they're very carefully drilled, and it must still yeah. be quite difficult to uh, yes. making them, especially, especially in the 6th millennium BC. Absolutely, yes. You know, I, I mean, you know, and rock crystal is extremely hard. Although, you know, the, the, the technology we kind of know, people have worked still work it, so we can work out exactly how it's done using carborundum and so forth mm. to, to drill with. Okay, thank you. We can't chemically characterise rock crystal at the moment. That's one of the problems, because it's so pure. Hello, thank you for the great lecture. I'm Al Amri, and I just have one question. Uh, in one of the photos, there was a photo of a, of a mosque, and on the ground there were stones, and you said that Muslims uh, don't like praying on sand. Yes. And I was just curious, like, from where did you conclude that? From the people, or? 
No, no, it's, 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 it's well, well recorded in the, some of the early Islamic literature. Um, I was a just there's a tradition, there is a tradition. Actually, he's even made, if you look at Cresswell, for example, he mentions it, for example, in early Islamic architecture. Um, I was just curious because until now, uh, we have some Muslims who actually prey on the rocks. On rocks, now. yes. On rocks, yeah. So, uh, so, so it, the tradition a continues. Tra a tradition and religion. So, yes, yeah. yes. Thank uh, you isn't much. that fascinating? Yes. It is. Just Thank you. Extraordinary continuity. So there we actually have people deliberately covering the mosque floor with small stones mm -hmm. in 780 or something. Hi. Um, are you planning to um, continue research? And if so, what are the... Um, the key data gaps that you're interested in filling and do you have like an overall hypothesis that you want to prove? Well I kind of gave you a bit of an overall hypothesis I think. Um, <laughs> um, so where are the data gaps? Well I mean obviously we need to do more work um, on the Comores. You know this is really the beginning of archaeology on the Comores on any scale. Um, the Mozambique coast really needs to be looked at in more detail. Um, we have sites down the Mozambique coast, but haven't really been looked at for, for, for many years using new methodologies. Um, getting proper chronologies is really key to work out the dates, to be able to use radiocarbon dates, to be able to tie down the dates of these sites very, very precisely. So that's an important data gap. Um, and we just need more data, really, more sites. I mean, you know, we've, we, I showed you an area, what, 4,000 miles long, something like that? <laughs> we sure what? Ten sites? <laughs> you might have thought it was ten, you know, ten, you know, when was it ever going to finish? But, you know, the, 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 there, is, there is a huge amount of stuff there. And the thing about archaeology is that, is that when we do archaeology, we always find surprising stuff and often and must annoy historians no end when we completely change our mind because we find something completely new in the bottom of a pit. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much for this fascinating talk. Um, just a question: Is the has the change of of um, sea level actually uh, is that noticeable over all this time? Uh, do you think that there are sites that are now underwater that you might want yeah. to explore? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, there's, two, there's two things that's happening. But we, 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 we puzzle about sea level the entire time, and there are terraces to suggest that sea level has gone down and gone up, and there's a bit of variability. Africa, by and large, as a landmass, is quite stable. So um, you're not getting static uplift or down thing. Essentially, it, the, it's reasonably stable. So any sea level rise is, is what's global sea level rise that's, that, that, that's happening. Um, so we wouldn't expect, you know, like, for example, the coast of India, where, where there are probably sites which are very deeply underwater. East Africa, we don't think that's happening necessarily. But what is certainly happening is erosion. And we get traditions that people say, oh, the city is under the sea. Um, and then we go to that site and we see that actually what's really happened is that the, the sea has eroded away, you know, three, four, five hundred metres of shoreline. And so the city really is under sea, but actually it's not because of sea level rise, but because of erosion. But yes, there, is, there are claims about sunken cities and so forth, uh, which have been in the press recently. Um, they are probably not true. <laughs> 
Mark, I have a question about Siroff because it was... Robots? Siroff. Yes, yes, yes. Well, because I was wondering all the time while you were speaking where the entrepots or where the ports were mm. in the Gulf. And, of course, Siroff is one of them. Mm. But it was destroyed by an earthquake in the 10th century? Yes, yes. Or a series so, of earthquakes, actually. Sorry? A series, a series of, of earthquakes, earthquakes actually. Yeah. So that was no longer a port. So, I mean, does it, Im does it impact the history that you're Yes, that you're it's a really interesting question. What, what seems to be happening, we can see this, this happening in terms of the type of imported pottery. So the assemblage associated with those turquoise glazed wares and Surafi jars in the late 10th century disappears and is replaced by what we would call scraffiato wares that's probably been made in the Makran area of southern Iran. Um, and it would seem that the ports at the entrance of the Gulf become much more important in the 11th century. Um, so we see the rise of Kish and Old Hormuz and places. And this may well be also linked and also ports all along the southern Arabian coast as well. There's a very interesting port um, that's recently published, a place called Sharma on the southern Arabian coast, which belongs to this post-Surafi period. In fact, people have suggested even that Sharma might well be a, a place of, of Surafian refugees that go off to Sharma. The interesting thing about Sharma is also that something like 30 or 40% of the pottery at Sharma is African. Um, so it may well be playing a role again in this post-Seraphian period. But also don't forget that in the 10th century we're seeing the rise of the Fatimid world, the Fatimid maritime trade um, between the Red Sea and India. So that may also be drawing people out of the Gulf um, as the sort of the Red Sea India route then becomes really important and appearing in the, the Jewish Geniza documents and so forth. So yes, everything sort of changes 1000 AD-ish and we can see that reflected. But invite know, me back and I'll uh, tell you about that. I'm sorry, sorry, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. it's a pleasure. I had another question about the, the, the last wreck. Um, Cirobon. The Cirobon, yeah. Because it seemed like it had everything on board. Mm. So and I, that's a puzzle to me because if it had all the Chinese pottery and yes. stuff from the Gulf and it also had the crystals... It was. It was seemed to be going around not offloading anything, <laughs> just like some kind of magpie across the. Uh... Yeah, I, mean, I, think I, mean, it... I don't understand how everything was on board. Yeah, well, I'm not sure we do either. It, actually, it was going back. <laughs> I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, how do these vessels actually operate? You know, did they have? You know, did they? If they couldn't sell all their lapis, if these enormous vessels, if they couldn't sell all their lapis lazuli. Whatever. Did they just keep it on board to see if they could find a market a bit for somewhere else where they were? You know, um, were the, the small number of sherds of turquoise glaze where ships um, crews foodware, for example, that got stuck? Um, you know, there must be all sorts of ways in which the, this type of mixed assemblage. I mean, there's no doubt it's coming from China because it's got just overwhelming quantity of Chinese wares, but. It may be picking stuff off. It, stuff might get lost in the bottom. I mean, you know, these vessels are notoriously difficult to get down, you know, clean them out and so forth. So, you know, there may be all sorts of processes. I mean, I just think we do not understand how these vessels operated. An evasive answer. But <laughs> yes, uh, thank you very much. I wondered... Um... I may be mistaken, but my impression was that the buildings, uh, housing you excavated in East Africa was not very large. 
And I wondered if people in that region were getting uh, rich from this trade or not, or if this is a global system in which the gains from the globalization were accruing uh, unequally, if there was a core where people were actually gaining much more, and perhaps you're excavating the periphery where the gains from uh, globalization are smaller. Well, that's a really interesting question, yes. Um, um, uh, to what extent, I mean, it's quite clear that what we're seeing in the archaeology is just simply the, the fragments, the tiny fragments left behind. I mean, you know, if you think of even Bellaton with 60,000 pieces of Changsha, and we're getting excited because we've excavated four pieces, tiny sherds, you know, what's actually being left behind? Um, so, yes, one could argue that actually they're, they're not building elaborate buildings, they're not really investing, certainly not until really the 13th or 14th century when we're starting to see, see real port cities developing with really complex architecture. So yes, I, I agree that, you know, what, what, how are they expressing their wealth and so forth that they're, that they're generating? Um, and that's a puzzle. One more. One more question, then. Can we have some to eat? <laughs> Do we have some to eat? <laughs> Hi. Um, Enjoy the fruits of globalization. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm wondering, you mentioned that we really don't understand how these vessels worked and like the way they operated and how the trade operated. So I'm wondering what we can do to better understand it, to, like, to understand how the, um, the vessels themselves operated. Well, I mean, there's two traps, one of which is to look at historical sources that have not been properly looked at um, before, and the most obvious source of that are the Geniza documents that refer to a slightly later period, but give some indication of the nature of the kind of social organisation on some of these vessels, and how the merchants, particularly how merchants are operating independently. So they're, they're buying package, they're buying a passage, if you like, on the vessel, rather than actually supporting the entire vessel, whether that's the case earlier on. So looking at the Geniza documents, the India book, um, that's never been, it's still being worked on today, so there's you know, an amazing quantity of material still there available. And let's just pray that we find some shipwrecks that we can excavate archaeologically rather than via commercial treasure hunters, effectively, who are mostly interested in getting, making a profit and not really um, in terms of investigating the hull structures in detail, because um, I think, again, if we could actually excavate one of these sites properly um, and take a long time over it, then we might get a lot more information. You've been listening to a download from the NYRBW Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.